When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with poet Edgar Kunz, author of the collection Fixer. You can't go into a poem thinking you know what the poem is going to be about. The poem poem is going to tell you, (laughs) eventually, if you're patient enough, it's going to tell you what it wants to be about. We'll be back with Edgar Kunz after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. 
please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is poet Edgar Kunz, author of Tap Out and Fixer. His poems have appeared widely, including in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Poetry Magazines. He has been a National Endowment for the Arts Fellow, a McDowell Fellow, and a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Some of the poems in his new collection, Fixer, look at the strangeness of labor, temporary jobs, talk therapy, urban gardening, and the robot revolution, all while investigating deeper themes of parental loss, estrangement, survival, and grief. The poems are lyrical, funny, and surprising, asking the reader to contemplate the ephemeral nature of life while also finding what might sustain us. We began the discussion with me sharing some of my first impressions of the collection with Edgar Kunz. After reading Fixer, I kind of came away with this feeling of, you know, loss and displacement and maybe early struggles and coming to terms with things. And you have this line in there that we can talk about later about someone sort of claiming you and like uh, the agency you have and then the agency that you don't have. So does that sound like the book you wrote? Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. That does sound like the book I wrote. Um, Oh, I love that you pulled out that line. Uh, the, about claiming it's it's from the end of that it's a little cheeky poem don't you think but it's uh it's about <laughs> it's about um the speaker's ex saying oh well you know if you let me claim me on your taxes you don't have to pay me back for the for the rent and for the wedding and so on uh and then and then the speaker hears their friend they're staying with their friend on the porch of their friend's house and they hear their friend inside knocking around making eggs and and uh and the speaker says i you know i, I let myself be claimed meaning like on the taxes, but also by this friend, by this new life, by this, like the deep mystery of what's going to come next after having made a series of decisions that didn't suddenly align with, uh, with who the speaker felt they, they were. It's so funny to say, you know, cause we're taught to do this, the speaker, the speaker, but in, but in this book, I'm the speaker. I mean, it's me. <laughs> if I'm feeling, you know, I, re I read that first poem in the book. Uh, every time I read, basically it's called day moon. And after I finish reading that poem, I always think, oh, man, I feel a little bad for this speaker. And then I realize, no, that's that's <laughs> I'm the speaker. You know, I, that was that was who I was at the time. The book is about it is about claiming it's about uh, claiming agency over your own life. It's about not being held hostage to to versions of yourself that you were or that you understood yourself to be and it's also about allowing yourself to be claimed by by people that love you and understand you 
So this is your second collection. And I wonder, because you're talking about the speaker, which is you, um, your experience of when this is out in the world, not just in single poems that come out, but as a collection of being this vulnerable. And do you feel like there's a shield because it's on the page and you're just putting it out there and it doesn't affect you that much, but it's just so vulnerable to me. Um, well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, I do feel vulnerable, but not, not vulnerable in the sense that, um, not a side of, not a kind of intensity of vulnerability that would make me feel uncomfortable with it, with it being in the universe. I mean, I think when you, uh, commit yourself to a life of making poems, <laughs> then your, your threshold of what feels like intensely uncomfortably vulnerable, uh, uh goes way, way up. I think you, you, you become more, um, more, more durable. And so for me, this book does, it does feel vulnerable, of course. I mean, relative to my first book, even people might, might think that my first book would be the one that, uh, that would feel where I would feel most exposed, but actually that one was so much about childhood and, and childhood is, is such a refracted, remembered and half invented kind of space. I actually felt more distance from those poems because, um, because so much is sort of rearranged or, or so much is an amalgamation of various people and experiences and so on. This book is so much more biographical. It's, it's so much more representative of, of my life that I'm living now. And so feels a lot more vulnerable. Um, you know, some of the details in these poems, I, I thought, I thought twice about including because, because so many of them are, are true. They completely come from my experience, but again, like the poems needed that level of disclosure. They needed that level of, of examination. I mean, this book is as much for me as it is for other people. And so, um, I, I wrote with the kind of vulnerability and intensity that I felt the the material required and it just happened to require a lot <laughs> i think in general that's what makes poetry great is because we are getting a window into someone else's soul in a way through words and language and syntax and lines yeah yeah i think that's right yeah so much of the you've alluded to this but so much of the book is about uh, my dad who is a long-term addict um, finally dying, uh, which is something that I'd been preparing for for a long time and my family had been preparing for for a long time. Um, but then it came, you know, and, and he was gone suddenly. And with him went the possibility of reconciliation, which I think I had always held on to. And, uh, and for, for the whole latter part of his life, he was only 52 when he died, you know, he was pretty young. And um, for the whole latter part of his life, he was inaccessible to me. I couldn't have a relationship with him that was based on on anything real. And so, and so the poems are an attempt to um, make a relationship with him, or to reach out to him in some way, to to explain to explain him <laughs> to myself, or to to come to some deeper understanding of uh, of who he was and what motivated him, and what he was, what love he was capable of, and what flaws he had, and so on. Um, you'll notice, I mean, maybe, maybe you've already noticed, but it took me a long time to realize that the whole middle section, which is called fixer, and it's built out of these 18 line poems, um, or 18 line sections that are then, you know, comprising the larger poem. They're all written in the second person. It's all you, you, you do this, you do that. And, and the you is the father. And it, and it, and I, and I realized that 
I was subconsciously reaching out to him, right? With these poems, they were like postcards that I had filled out and was sending. Uh, and I knew there was no hope of a response coming back, but it was important that I write them and send them out. Uh, and like, and like all poems there, you know, there's something called the epistolary poem. I'm sure, you know, it's a, it's a um, poem in the form of a letter. And what I think is so interesting about that form of poem is that a letter is private communication, right? It's meant to be written uh, by one person and received by one person. Um, but a epistolary poem is also meant to be overheard by the reader of the poem, you know? So there's this third person that's coming in and sort of uh, overhearing what's going on. And so the poems in the middle section are written, I think, with that in mind. They're not entirely private communication. They're kind of meant to be intercepted and, uh, and experienced by people who have no context. So that poem in the middle is called Fixer, which is also the title of the collection. And I'm curious to ask you about landing on this word and what it means to you. Yeah, it's a weird word, right? <laughs> Oftentimes, I think people think the book is called The Fixer. That would make more sense, right? But um, I liked Fixer on its own. Uh, I showed a draft of this book to my sweetheart, who I live with, and she came back to me and said, here's the title. And it was Fixer. And I was like, I think that that's absolutely correct. So it was a moment of genius from someone else, you know, someone that knows me and loves me and, and knows my work. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. But but. I think the title ripples out in a bunch of different directions that I think are productive. Um, so the dad is a handyman, right? And, and he, he ostensibly fixes things. There's this uh, poem in the middle section where I, one of his friends is talking. The, the poem is so much dialogue, you know, I'm just kind of letting people talk. And, and, uh, and it's, it's his friend saying he could fix anything, you know, he was amazing. And just listing all the things that, that she had, uh, that he sh she had seen him fix or heard about him fixing or whatever. Um, so that's, you know, on, on its most literal level, I think that's what I was thinking about. Uh, or that, or I guess that's why, uh, that's why the title makes sense. But also, I think the book, you tell me, but I think the book is also about um, a person trying to repair their life, right? Trying to look clearly at the damage and see like, what can I make out of this? You know, can I, can I, can I build something with these, uh, with these materials, you know, out of this wreckage, uh, actually like what's intact and what do I not need to fix? What's already, what's already, you know, working well. Um, and then also as a reviewer said recently, which I thought was so smart, uh, it's a, it's a book about becoming fixed, like fixed in, in place, fixed in, in, uh, in a stage of life. Um, you know, I finally have a city that I love that I live in and I'm building a stable situation for myself. I just got engaged this summer, uh, to, to Katie. Um, and that feels really good. You know, I've got a job that I like finally that has decent health insurance. <laughs> so, so my life is kind of stabilizing and, and, and taking a shape after many, many years of being just total chaos uh, and, and freestyling. Um, and so in, in that sense, the title fits well too, I think. I'm curious about something you said in the beginning that reminds me of this idea of simultaneity. And what I mean by that is, well, you were talking about your first book that was more in your childhood. So you don't feel as vulnerable with it. And that 
this is kind of you maybe looking for rootedness and looking at your more recent past where you're going from job to job or you're looking for, you know, something that'll pay you. And, um, you, you write in there in, in the poem fixer when you're, it's sort of, um, it's almost like a story of the beginning of when you first learned of your father's death and you break into his apartment to, get everything and you're kind of moving through and talking about the things that he has in his house and, you know, through to an autopsy and, and the cause of death. And you have a line in there that says, um, everything we touch, you touched your socks, your coat, the cash in your pocket, the cellophane from a fresh pack Zippo with a carving of a whale proud ship in the distance. So uh, what I mean by simultaneity is like, everything there was there for maybe a long time and that he touched it and you touched it. And even though he's gone, that's where connection lies. Beautiful. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I mean, when, when real durable connection isn't possible, you look for it in other places. Right. And so I I went into that apartment hungry to know who he was and to try to get a handle on how he was living and, and to, to sift for artifacts. I mean, so much of it is just looking at the stuff and thinking like, does this, will this tell me something? Will this tell me something? And of course, you know, I, I came across his lighter, which I mentioned at the end of that poem, Zippo with a carving of a whale, a proud ship in the distance. Uh, and that's his actual lighter that he, I mean, he was a lifelong smoker and, and, uh, and that lighter was the lighter he used all through my childhood. And it's the one thing I took with me, um, from that place. And, uh, and it's on the cover of the book. That lighter on the cover is, is my dad's actual lighter. I had, uh, my, my really talented friend, Elise, uh, take the photo and send it to echo the publisher. And luckily they, they liked it and they made a cover out of it. I wonder if you would read the very last section of the poem, because it also has one of my favorite ideas in it. I guess, so for me, these, uh, these middle poems all have secret titles. Uh, I, I took them off because I wanted all the, I wanted them to flow one into the next under the title fixer. And I, so I sort of turned it into all one poem, but the secret title for this poem is piano. I held them together as long as I could. She says, he stopped working, stopped coming upstairs. He was like tissue paper coming apart in water, like smoke in my hands. It had nothing to do with you, baby. You left when you had to. I met a woman once who worked on pianos, said it was a hard job, the tools, the leverage, the required ear. I love it, she said, but it's brutal. The second I step away, it's already falling out of tune. So I love that idea. I mean, talking about fixed in time that, you know, you can't hold things together. And for you, like your dad, like you couldn't have stayed with him to make him not use and drink like you. uh, It's just like the precarity of our, our humanness is that we can't hold things in a state of stasis. Yeah, I think that's right. It seems to me 
the people around addicts, you know, in, in the long term, tend to have an inflated sense of how much control they can exert, right? They think that like, if I don't hold it all together, it's going to come falling apart or it's going to explode and hurt other people, right? Like I am the one thing that's keeping this from disintegrating. And, and I think at the end of the day, uh, you actually have very little power. You have very little power over what's going to happen. I mean, broadly speaking, but especially when you're, when, when, uh, when the person you love and who you're trying to exert some control over is, uh, is deep, deep in addiction. And so we take on this responsibility and we, and we sort of, um, we, we, we think that we have more power than we do. Uh, and so the great, the great sadness of that poem, I think, is the realization that like, no matter how often I go back to this piano and I tune it and I tune it and I tune it, which is exhausting work, right? I, I love that aspect of the poem. Like if you talk to a piano tuner, they say like, it's, it's the physical exertion required to wrench on those thick strings and get them to the right tension is, is immense. Um, no matter how many times you come back to it, it's never gonna be as in tune as the, as, as the exact moment when the tuning is finished. You know? As soon as you step away from it, it's already falling apart again. And so, you know, the work that my mom was doing, I think, was was stabilization work, but it was never going to be permanent. That piano was determined to go completely out of tune. And it was just a matter of her endurance, you know, um, which eventually waned, uh, as all of ours did, you know. But that the end of that poem comes straight from, here's a little uh, trivia, <laughs> the end of that poem comes from a conversation I had with a piano tuner on an airplane, on a flight, either leaving or coming back uh, to Baltimore, which is where I live. And this this person, this woman was a, was a piano tuner for Johns Hopkins University. And she's, we got talking, I'm a curious guy, especially about weird jobs like that. And so I was asking her a lot of questions and, and she just said that line out loud. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I have to find a use for this. And it, it, it was years before I started writing this book, but I wrote it down in my notes app on my phone and I thought, I'm going to find a place for this. And, and, and as you may know, like that almost never works out, right? You, you this clever line that you overhear, you're like, ah, this is going to, this is going to make me, this is going to be my, my great line, you know? And then you try to fit it in a million times and it never works and you forget about it. But this one somehow really, uh, I had the first half of the poem. And I thought, oh, I don't know where I'm going to go now. And, and I let it simmer. And then I remembered that interaction I had. And I basically just wrote, wrote some lines about that interaction and ending with that, with that great phrase that this, this person told me on an airplane. And then uh, that was the poem. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. The next poem is called Tuning. And at the end of that poem, you, you say something that seems similar to me and thematic for your book. You talk mm. about, you say, I'm caught in... And there's a semicolon, which I think is important. I'm caught in suffering and calibration. And I I got the sense, I mean, that's a very similar thing to what you're just talking about is like, uh, you know, being there, calibrating the piano and then walking away when it's out of tune and, and suffering like that. 
And yeah. I got that sense from your whole entire collection. Uh, I mean, maybe now you're in like a good state where you're out of that type of cycle, but just wanted to ask you about that line too. You know, this question reminds me of my teacher, Louise Glick, who just passed away a couple of days ago. Um, and I think she was a great poet of suffering and calibration. You know, she had a way of making experience, which she found, I think, broadly speaking, disappointing and dark, uh, a way of making experience luminous, or if not luminous, at least bearable, you know, putting it into language allows for a kind of grace that your lived experience uh, doesn't allow for. Um, too much chaos, too much, too much sadness, too much, uh, too, too little meaning. And so for me, writing poems has always been a method of calibration, a, me a method of um, ordering what, what has been a completely uh, a disordered experience. So that's the work. I mean, that's the practice, looking at what has happened to you and saying, what can I make of this? Uh, and, and, and there's something more here than it seemed at first. And the answer is almost always, yes, there is a lot more that you didn't see while you were living it. And the poem is a place to, to explore that and to discover that. And then, you know, the, the reader gets to discover it along with you. So how has your experience of writing poems changed how you live or how your memories change, but I'm, but I'm thinking more about in the future because your poems are so much about the past. I mean, everything is past, right? As soon as you write the poem, it's past, even if it was yesterday. But I'm curious if what you're saying now, if that informs your life and if writing poetry influences that. It does. Yeah. 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 Of course it does. I said this in an interview recently, but I really, I really believe it. The poems are a part of how I'm living. You know, it's, it's not like, um, it's less like I'm having experiences and then mining those experiences for poems. It's more like the practice of writing poems is a part of how I get through my days, <laughs> how I live my life, how I make sense of the world and make and make meaning. So Right. I mean, making the making of the poems is woven into the fabric of my life, but also I think writing poetry now for, you know, 15 years or longer, I like to think that it has made me a more sensitive person. It's made me, it's made me notice more or it's improved the quality of my noticing. You can't go into a poem thinking, you know, what the poem is going to be about. The poem is going to tell you <laughs> eventually, if you're patient enough, it's going to tell you what it wants to be about. And some some deeper aspect, some more some complexity is going to rise out of what seemed maybe at first to be uh, pretty straightforward. And I think that that practice has been really valuable for me as a person, this kind of uh, flowing toward complexities or admitting complexity, being comfortable in ambiguity which is which is really really hard to do and i think is really rare you know it's the rare person who can sit in ambivalence um and so poems help me do that i think we have to sit with so much ambiguity to be citizens of the world today yeah i know 
Oh gosh. I mean, it's almost too much to get into. It's just grief, grief on grief on grief. The the latest with, with Israel and Palestine, it's it's almost too much to bear. And everyone thinking they know exactly, you know, what side to come down on or what to say or what 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 polemic to espouse and so on. And and it's all it, it amounts basically to just immense, immense human suffering. Uh I, yeah, I wouldn't even know what to say about it. So sometimes you just write poems. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you can read a count because I want to talk more about the line we talked about at the beginning. I'm happy to read this one. I, I never read it. But like I said, I've been on tour now for, for quite a long time and, um, and I've never read this one. Account. Because I was the one to end it and so soon I offered to reimburse her what I owed. She had covered most of the wedding the move, our rent. I was living on the grace of a friend sleeping in his sunroom on Folsom. Every morning I opened my account to see how little I had left. It wasn't looking good until she wrote to say we could forget it if I would let her claim me on her taxes. I guess there was a rebate for this kind of thing. I could hear my friend knocking around in the kitchen, making coffee, frying eggs. I couldn't believe my luck. I let myself be claimed. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about that is um, you said, you know, I couldn't believe my luck. I let myself be claimed is that there is this immediate thought that you're giving up agency by letting someone else put you on their taxes but when you say, yeah. I let myself, there's complete agency. Even though the word let feels more like the power isn't in your hands, it is. Like that is a moment of power disguised as a moment of not power. Beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm learning things about my book right now. Yeah, thank you for that. Beautiful. Uh, I think it is. I think it is a kind of agency. I think it is a kind of insisting, insisting on a, ins- I don't know, in, in a sort of uh, insisting on allowing someone to take care of you or to or to usher you into a new life or to to be there for you in an unexpected way, right? Where where the friend is concerned, but also uh, where the where the ex is concerned to to close a chapter, to decide like you know what, fine. I will allow this to happen, uh, which then is allowing this larger uh, movement to come to to a close, which it's almost like the one makes the other possible. Do you know what I mean? The allowing to to be uh, be claimed on the taxes is what allows the friend to claim them and kind of bring them into what into nourishment, into into heightened awareness of, you know, coffee and eggs. Yeah. 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 Anyway, but, but I mean, I wasn't conscious of those things, writing the poem, I was kind of writing intuitively. And then only later I was like, Oh, that's interesting. So how do you know when you're done? Showing the poems to other people helps, you know, but, but I, but I also think, you know, cause they can reflect back to you what they see happening in the poem. And if they think the poem is fulfilled, right. If it's achieved what it's set out to do. Um, but you also want to make sure that the poet is amb- the poem is ambitious enough. Like if the poem is just setting out to do something simple and it achieves that thing, well, you know, fine. But but you've got to make sure that the poem is pushing uh, p- 
past the even the first, second, third thing that that you might think the poem is doing, and into some you know more more difficult and nuanced place, um, a truer place, you know, ultimately. So uh, so how do I know when it's finished? You know, I don't I don't know when I read it, and I and I don't hate it when I when I read it when I read it and I'm not like oh that's so corny you know. Or like, ah, I, th- I think that's over simple or it's too easy. That metaphor is too, the, the elements of that metaphor, you know, the submerged content and the and the surface level content, they're too close. They're too close together. It's too obvious of a, of a comparison to be making. Um, then I try to, then I, then I try to increase that distance vastly. You know, I try to make the metaphor uh, more surprising and and more alive, um, or I or I try to insist that the poem has more to tell me that I that I have more to learn from it. This is all sounding very like I don't know woo woo, but but it it really is that is how it is for me. I I I do. I'm just acting on faith basically the whole time, um, and hoping that something something emerges. I used to write very differently. I used to plan my poems out uh sort of ahead of time and then and then I executed them on the page and I go back and read those poems now and I'm like oh no 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 there's not it's like it's like Frost says in that in that great essay the figure a poem makes you know that one he says a bunch of things one one of them is uh a poem like a block of ice on a hot stove should ride on its own melting and I, I don't really know what that means but I really like to think about it the the Part of the essay I'm thinking about, though, is some no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. And and I take that to mean that that the reader has a great bullshit detector and they're going to know when you sort of set something up and then executed it like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm setting up the dominoes and then, oh, I knocked the dominoes down and it's had this effect that I was building toward the whole time. I've become over time more and more skeptical of that way of writing a poem. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't please me like it used to. And so now I'm trying to figure out a new way of doing it. And and this book is a, a sort of exercise in, uh, in trying to know as little as possible. And then when the poem feels intuitively finished, when, when I stop hating it, when I stop, when I stop wanting to shake it upside down and, and hope that things fall out of it, you know, then I think, okay, now it's time to show it to other people. Um, and I have a couple writer friends, you know, that I, that I show things to. And if they come back and say, you know, this seems pretty good, then I know, you know, that it might be a real poem. One of the things in your poem about your father was uh, uh, you were trying to find out the moment that he died, because I think you found him or uh, later, it may be of several days. And that seemed really important to know. I don't know that you can know that, but I'm curious. Yeah, I don't, I don't know it, which is why there's a poem about it. Yeah, he was found, he was found in his apartment some days after he had died. And so you can imagine, you know, what that was like. That, that's a later poem for me in the middle section. You know, I'd written a lot of other poems and then, or a lot of other sections of that poem. And then, uh, and then the thought occurred to me, like, where was I? Where was I then? And, and in the window, because it says in the poem that, you know, that there's a window, the cop said, but we can't be sure. So I thought, well, where, where is that window? And it made me think of this great Natasha Trethewey poem from Native Guard called Myth. And it starts with this. It's a mirror poem. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem um, where the it, where the first part is reflected back in the second part. Like the, the poem goes in reverse order. 
as it finishes. But the first line is, I was asleep while you were dying. I was asleep while you were dying. And I let that, I let that poem kind of guide me in, uh, in exploring maybe what I was doing. And the poem ends up being kind of cheeky and fun in a way, you know, so it talks about maybe we were having sneaky sex. Maybe we were, maybe we were getting hammered at our favorite bars, you know, and then it, and then it has this, uh, turn. And, and when the turn happened, I realized, oh, this is, this is actually a poem out front of my friend's house. There's this pomelo tree and a pomelo is like a very sour, almost inedible, like grapefruit type fruit. Um, but it was like covered in pomelos, just abundance and abundance. And, uh, and I remember reaching up and pulling them almost as if by faith out of the dark, you know, you could hardly see them, but you knew they were there and you reached up and pluck one down this thing that was like almost useless to you, but was a fruit nevertheless. Um, and I thought, well, that maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that has something to say back to the experience of, um. I don't know to the to the larger experience of trying to make sense of of uh, of his death and who he was as a person and who I am in relation uh, to all that. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at Patreon.com/slash/FirstDraftWriters. Can you read? a section of something that another author wrote that influences you or moves you as a writer. Absolutely. Yeah. I, can I read a whole poem? Is that allowed? Yes. Cool. It's this poem by Ellen Bryant Voigt, who I think is a completely brilliant poet. Um, she's also a chain smoker. She's like, she's in her eighties. I think she's, she's every time I see her, she's ripping cigarettes. And, uh, and this poem, the reason why I bring that up is because this poem is about trying not to smoke. Um, it's in a way a poem about bad behavior, about trying to resist something. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, <clears throat> but I think this poem, well, I won't say too much about it. I'll talk about it after. Uh, it's called Sleep. Another heavy frost, what doesn't die or fly away, the groundhog, for instance, the bear, is deep in sleep. I'm thinking a lot about sleep. Translation, I'm not sleeping much, who used to be a champion of sleep. Ex-champions are pathetic, my inner parent says. The world is full of evil, death, cruelty, degradation. Not sleeping scores only two out of ten. But a moral sense is exhausting. I am exhausted. A coma looks good to me. If only I could be sure there'd still be dreams. It's what I miss the most. Even in terrible dreams at least you feel what you feel not what you're supposed to feel your house burns down so what if you survived you rake the ashes sobbing exhausted from trying to not smoke i once asked for a simple errand from my beloved who wanted me not to smoke he forgot unforgivable i fled the house like an animal wounded enraged i was thinking more clearly than i had ever thought my thought was why prolong this life i flung myself into the car i drove like a fiend to the nearest store. I asked unthinking for unfiltered luckies. Oh, brand of my girlhood. I paid the price. I took my prize to the car. I slit the cellophane. I tapped out one perfect white cylinder. I brought to my face the smell of the barns, the fires cooking it, golden brown smell of my father, my uncle's, my grandfather's tin of loose tobacco, his packet of delicate paper, the deliberate way he rolled and licked and tapped and lit and drew in and relished it, the smell of the 
wild girl behind the gym, the boys and pickup trucks. I sat in my car as the other cars crept by. I looked like a pervert. It was perverse, a lucky under my nose. I drove myself home. I threw away the pack, which was unwise. The gods don't notice whining. They notice brief, bright flares of human will. They lean from their couches. Yes, more fear and dread for that one. Yes, let's turn the suffering up a notch. Let's watch her strike the match. I strike it now. When I wake in the dark, I light that little fire. So tell me more about that. I fucking love that poem. I swear on this podcast, I love that poem beyond all reason. It's got this incredible momentum right? Uh, it's unpunctuated. It, it, uh, it vaults, it, it sort of shoots us out of a cannon. And then, and then it messes with that momentum later. It slows down a little bit toward the end. It makes us, it arrests our momentum a little bit, uh, which I think is so masterful. It's also, it's hilarious. It's both like deeply serious uh, and also like pee or pay is funny, I think, especially this part about the the gods, you know, uh, this launch into the gods is really lovely and, and surprising, which was unwise. The gods don't notice whining. They notice. So it's this huge shift in scope, too. I mean, the poem is doing so much, I think, so, so beautifully. Um, and it's moving associatively. Uh, like a lot of great Larry Levis poems move, you know, where you, where you think, okay, I think I have a handle on what this poem is doing and what it's going to be about. And then it sort of shifts and brings in this other aspect so smoothly and effortlessly. And you think, God, what is, what is happening to me? And then it arrives at this beautiful uh, 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 crystallized moment. You know, I strike it now. When I wake in the dark, I light that little fire. You think, how did we get here you got to go back into the poem and and rediscover all the moves that she took you through to arrive at this one perfect moment and it's about giving in it's about giving in to 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 an impulse giving in to something that you know ultimately is going to destroy you you can't keep smoking these cigarettes but you do for the pleasure of it and because because there are times in your life when you think why prolong it? You know, why, what, what I'm having such a good time, you know, let me smoke the cigarette. Let me take my pleasures where I can get them. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. I, I love that poem. I think about it all the time. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really like. I'm going to read a poem that I, that sleep that poem by Ellen Brian Foy made possible kind of unlocked a mode of expression for me that I want to, that I want to keep pushing into maybe in another book. Um, no punctuation and just allowing the wild energy of the poem and the wild associative movement of the poem lead me forward. Uh, it's the first poem in the book. It's called day moon. After I left, I waited for someone, a friend or her herself to walk quickly up to me on the bus or in the bustling coffee shop and slap my face, spit on my hands, call me a bastard, a real motherfucker. By waited, I mean I wanted to be revealed by some visible sign, a welt to ride the ledge of my cheek through the glass littered streets. It didn't come and it didn't come and I grew desperate. I stared too long at strangers at Safeway. I bought boxes of clementines and ate them like a possum on the train, cramming the rinds in the gap 
lap between the seat and the wall. I drank warm beer. I made no calls. I sat on a hot metal bench by a briny lake and tried to imagine the lives of the joggers passing in front of me, their joys, their sicknesses and regrets. It was melodramatic. I was useless. I thought of my friend who wrote a novel over a long winter in Nova Scotia, read it once and buried it in the copse of birches behind the house. He chose the spot, he said, for its plainness. So he couldn't remember later and dig it up. And in this way, one medicated season slid into the next without incident, gardenia bloom, persistent sun. I fell in love with the perfect voice of a Midwest radio DJ from a station I streamed on my phone, called in one request after another. I fell in love with a video of Stevie Nicks singing backstage to her makeup artist, sheer cotton dress, their harmonies breezy and immaculate. I woke around noon to the thup thup of helicopters and another unsober voicemail from my dad angling for a loan, went out in my underwear and found a fine black powder settling on the windowsills, dusting the parked cars, a day moon suspended in orange haze. It turned out a man who would go months without getting caught was methodically setting fire to the half-built condo complexes one by one. One in 10,000 residents is a billionaire, the same article told me, though I could be forgiven for thinking the headlands were burning again. The intervals between disasters collapsing, I caught my neighbor's eye. She was stretching on her stoop in a fantastic powder blue tracksuit. What a world, I said, and she didn't seem to hear and jogged across the narrow street, the moon behind her rising or sinking or neither. It was hard to know. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah, I just, I think the first book, especially, and, and even for parts of this book, I've written with such control. Um, I've really, I'm a whittler, you know, so I'll make a draft and then I'll cut it down and down and down until it's just the essential elements, you know, really simple materials, uh, arranged relatively simply with little fanfare and trying to get it to sort of, uh, trying to get an explosion to go off or trying to get it to sort of transcend itself somehow. And, and writing, I have a couple poems in this book like this that are written in the, in the style of sleep, uh, that I that I think are tapping into a different pleasure for me just letting myself go anything gets to come into the poem the Stevie Nicks video that I can't stop watching comes into the poem you know this woman uh, that, that came out of her apartment across the street wearing this amazing outfit gets to come into the poem the guy burning down the condo complexes comes in you know everything everything is allowed in and then you ask yourself the question okay what of this is actually essential to to the poem functioning uh, or to the poem maintaining its energy, its forward momentum and so on. That that for me is a completely different way of thinking about how a poem can work. And I find it really liberating. It also allowed me to be funny. I mean, I think, I think there are parts of that poem that are quite funny uh, in a way that I find really difficult to do if I'm writing in the, in the sort of other, I don't know what you would call it, but more like um, stricter, a stricter mode. Where do you write? Yeah. First drafts, I usually write in a coffee shop. Um, I've got one that's like 10 minutes from my house that I really love. It's called Artifact. Shout out Artifact. Uh, it's in this old mill building down by. So so in, in Baltimore, I live in, a, I live in Hamden, which is this old mill village that got incorporated into the city. Um, and, uh, and down the hill from us, I can see it now from the window of my office. 
uh, there's the highway, but underneath the highway, there's the river called the Jones Falls that used to feed all these all these mills, right? And made all this work possible. We were the number one producer of sailcloth for many years. But anyway, uh, this this uh, coffee shop is in this old mill building. I love the space. I love the texture of the place, the mood of the place. And so I go there and I, I bring a couple books, um, usually a couple a couple I already know I love, and then a few new ones that I that I want to uh, take a look at. And I just read. The walk there helps, you know, gets the body moving. I think a couple thoughts maybe, uh, and then I, I order a coffee and I sit down and I read and. Um, and if it's a good day, a line from something that I've read sets something off. It reminds me of, of something that's happened to me or, or, or it's I like the texture. I'm like, God, let me try to write something that has that same kind of texture and I'll, I'll jot it down or a piece of dialogue that often happens too. Or I just hear a voice I'm like, oh, that's an interesting thing for someone to say. And I write that down. And then if it seems like it has legs right away, I might keep writing. But I also might just go back to, to reading. Um, and then And then, you know. I start to get hungry because all I've had is coffee and I, and I, uh, if I'm feeling flush, if I've got some extra money, I order a breakfast sandwich or something, but, but if not, I just walk home and on the walk home, I think about what I've read and what I've written and I, I cook myself some eggs at home and then, and then maybe I keep working, but maybe not. Um, it's all very stop start. It's all pretty chaotic, but I try to impose a little order, which involves going to the shop, reading, see if anything happens and then, uh, and then go on with the rest of my day. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Oh, I disappear into projects, like physical projects, you know. Um, in our old house, I, I spent days and days on my hands and knees sanding the floors uh, and refinishing them. You know, there's no reason for me to do that. I had no idea what I was doing, but I like to get in over my head uh, with these things and then find find a way out, kind of fight my way out of the the, the bag I've put myself in. Um, yeah, in, in our current house, I mean, we, uh, we have a garden in the back that we built, Katie and I built together. We, we, um, we built these garden boxes and fences and planted all this stuff. And, and we manage it now with our friend Echo. What a great name, right? ECHO. She grew up on an island in Maine with a big garden. And so she's the one who has all the knowledge about how to actually do this stuff. Katie and I are just kind of floundering around having, having a nice time. Um, but I, yeah, I, I go out, I, I work in the garden, um, not knowing what anything is called or really what to do. It's a lot of weeding, uh, or I, or I find some, I built all the fences in our yard out of wood that I, that I found. And, um, I'm replacing all the doors in the house. I just replaced the last door in the house, actually to, to Katie's office with these doors that we would find in these warehouses at the edge of the city, these sort of like reclaimed, uh, reclaimed door palaces <laughs> and the doors didn't need to be replaced you know they were the doors we had were perfectly fine i have a poem in the book about it uh the doors were fine but i just i needed something to do and i wanted to to make our space a little more beautiful they have these cut glass knobs that catch the light really really lovely so i'm a nester you know i spend a lot of my time nesting uh and and sort of getting in over my head on these home projects um, and it brings me great joy. It's a totally different kind of pleasure than writing poems. You know, you install the door and the door is installed. There it is. You get to use it. It's done. You know when it's done. A poem is so much more ephemeral. You could kind of keep revising forever and ever until you eventually decide, you know what, I'm sick of this one. I mean, I'll do I'll do a new one and we'll, we'll do this whole thing all over again. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? 
Yeah, my friend, my I have one friend really that I rely on so much. Um, we rely on each other, you know, we send drafts back and forth. Um, I don't think he would mind if I told you who he was. He was Anders. Uh, he's a he's a poet also. He's an incredible poet. And um, and the two of us send drafts back and forth. My friend Sam too, uh, my friend Meg, uh, all poets, you know. So so you can kind of count on having to return the favor, which feels good. You're not just asking for free labor. They're like, ah, they're going to send me one that I'm going to have to have something to say about. So that it feels like an equal exchange. Um, Katie would tell you that she's the one that bears the brunt of it. And she's probably right. You know, if I'm excited about a draft, I'm like calling to her, Katie, come look at this. And she's like, God, oh, you know, I'm doing my own writing. Like, stop bothering me. <laughs> but she's so smart and she's so, and she's so perceptive and, uh, and and she really understands me and what I'm trying to do. So it's it's hard not to to saddle her with a lot of poems. And uh, and I trust her to tell me when I'm full of shit, which I am sometimes. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, not well. I don't know. I mean, the whole the whole uh, the whole thing is kind of built on testing your durability even even the great writers get rejected all the time i have to imagine you know i mean my my batting average is very low when you look at it from a statistical perspective but when you do get a win or even half a win you know when you get like a a tiered rejection when some editor says like hey this didn't suck that much you know that's a win like put it up on your fridge like your mom used to do with your drawings or right like you have to you have to find occasion to celebrate any little any little uh uh non-failure uh that's the only way you're going to survive i don't know it's it's so much rejection all the time um that you've got to yeah you've got to insist again and again that like you know this this is worth doing um even apart from recognition from the places we might hope uh for recognition from and then once in a while, a, a totally unconditional win comes your way. And it's like, oh, it makes it all worth it. It's really, it's such a blessing. And what is your favorite word? You know, this it's a little corny, but I was just watching this, uh, this documentary about the Beatles with um, Paul McCartney. And I love the way he says the word love. He's got a Liverpool accent. So he's like, Luf, Luf, how are you, Luf? It's like, oh, that's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah, so the word love, but but the way Paul McCartney says it. Thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. I really appreciate it. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you liked today's show with Edgar Kunz, author of Fixer, check out my interview with poet Nick Flynn on his collection, I Will Destroy You. We talked about recovery, being on the precipice, fairy tales, and poetry born out of news stories. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. 
The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Alice McDermott. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.